Do you feel that in a time when we are more connected than ever, we are drifting away from real human connections, especially to ourselves? I do. Hi, I'm Leticia Latino, and I want to invite you to join me and my very inspiring guests in exploring ways to reconnect to your essence, to your definite purpose, to what makes you tick. Are you ready? Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to Basics. I have a pink shoe sister with me today, and if you've heard the last couple of episodes, you should know what that is, but if you haven't, I'm co-authoring a book called Women in Business Leading the Way with 14 other brilliant women, and I've been inviting them. I've had a couple of them already on the show, and I've been inviting them one by one so that you can get to know them and listen firsthand what amazing co-authors I have for this book. So today I have Joan Brothers. She's the founding partner of Manhattan Boutique Real Estate. Uh, She has been helping clients navigate New York residential and commercial real estate for 20 years. And uh, she's already has been a source of inspiration for me. Hello, Joan. How are you doing? Hello, Leticia. It's such a pleasure to be speaking with you and your your viewership, readership, listenership. I'm really excited. And it was such a pleasure to actually meet you in person because that was was a lot of fun. It was special, wasn't it? We, yes. We spoke a little bit with April, whom I already had on the podcast, and we say how special it was to meet each other one night that we were doing a TV appearance and uh, nobody has seen each other. And then that night it was like we had been friends forever. It's amazing when you think about it. If you connect all the things that you can do, it's so much fun to see where really it wasn't all 15 of us, but 15 people, they get together, they meet, they have a commonality of sort of we're doers. All of us were doers. And, you know, we're creative and we have a lot of energy. And we all said, well, let's go this direction. Okay, let's do this. Then, you know, certain ideas beget other ideas. It was re- it's really an incredible, you know, feature to see that just meeting can create such a friendship and, and create such good ideas going forward. Absolutely. And I think we all feel kind of, uh, it's the first book for most of us, right? Yes, so I think we yes. all feel on the same boat. And uh, I think that's something that when you have a crazy idea or you want to do something that maybe not many people do it, once you find your cohort and other people that are into that, it becomes so empowering. Exactly. Well put. Yeah. <laughs> well, I feel almost like we're at the end of the podcast rather than at the beginning. So that's how good this is going to be. So, so Joan, you know that I'm going to start asking about who you were as a little girl. Sure. I love to he- listen and, and make and connect the dots about what your interests were as a young child and right. your family and all that good stuff. So the one thing I know, I think, are you from, from Connecticut originally? I am. I am. Because that's where we taped the TV appearance exactly. and we were all staying at the hotel and you oh no, I'm home. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Well, no, I did. It's it, you're by the way, your questions and your thoughts really made me sit and think a little bit because, you know, I think we all have these sort of blanket answers that are just like, you know, we have our veneer that we wear and then we can answer it with a, a polished answer. But I really sort of sat and I regard you as someone of a friend and I wanted to give 
like uh, I really wanted to think a little bit more about your question. So yes, I grew up in Connecticut. My family was from New York and Boston. So we're East Coast or, you know, East Coast people, okay. New England people and New Yorker people. And I, I really loved growing up there because I grew up in the suburbs. It was a lovely place. It, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s in this environment and it was just a lot of fun. So I I, I guess to paint a picture because it's hard to do otherwise, you know, I just I was a very social person. I really always liked the idea of business, although, of course, when you're young, you really have no idea. And we didn't have the Internet to teach us how to do that. That's we kind of had like libraries, like yeah, a book. And it's not the same, really. You kind of like come to things. My father was a professor of Asian history at the University of Hartford. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we had a very internationally focused household. And my father was a very proactive globalist early on when not everybody was very focused on that. So I had that perspective. And I remember a book he gave me when I was really little. I hadn't remembered this in like forever because I thought, well, how does my past tie to where I am now? Mm-hmm. I, I love this. it. I love that. <laughs> Thank you for the, making that. It makes my, it makes my whole, uh, hosting uh, job easier. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was interesting because I remember as a little girl flipping through this book, my father must have given me and said, people in the South Pacific live in a house like this which on stilts and people in Alaska or live in igloos, you know, that's not necessarily true, but I mean, they made generalizations of people living in subtropical places. And this is what a house look, or if you lived in the Nordic countries, this is what a house looked like. And I was fascinated what people lived in, how they, and then of course, the other fascination, which is really interesting is how do people live their lives? Because my life growing up in Connecticut was very simple. It was fairly sheltered. I think it was much more different than you growing up in Venezuela in chaotic times. Um, I grew up in times when it was fairly a materialistic society of the eighties. Um, the go-go banking was big, you know, um, several of my family friends where my best friend's father was like the head of a company. So we'd go to these fabulous corporate events, you know, so when you're 12 and you're eating lobster in the, you know, the, uh, this, the individual room watching a game, you know, a sports game, that's like, wow, this is, this is living here. That was, that was a <laughs> definitely a treat. <laughs> yes. So I had an interesting background. Yeah. Father, intellectual, very global. Most people in Connecticut at the time were less global, loved, housing, not knowing why, loved lifestyle. That was really interesting. What were people doing in other parts of the world? What was life like? And so that that's kind of my background in childhood. And then I got into college. I went to a all-girls boarding school called Miss Porter's, which is a really wonderful environment. And although we miss boys terribly, we got to have our own voice as women. You know, you're not taken back from that. And, uh, that environment was wonderful. I met some very interesting, very wonderful women. And then I went to college and I studied economics and I, I minored in uh, Asian studies in Boston. And that was a wonderful experience too. Wow, it sounds very interesting. And, and it sounds also that uh, the impact that uh, your dad had and how he was and, and things he liked and books he gave you really eventually translated into the life you have. It, I guess that's that's how things go. You don't realize it. And, and I think I have a child, you have 
children, I believe. And I hope that's okay to say on air. Yes, um, that's of course. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, you, you, you sort of expose, you know, your family to as much as you can, and you kind of hope something sticks. That's that's true. But, you know, you I sometimes surprise, and, and this podcast has helped me open my mind and my own experience, because my experience was like yours a little bit. You know, I was, uh, I have to say, I have a great uh, upbringing, and my dad was a big influence. But I've interviewed people that have told me, my parents, if I learned anything from them, was what I didn't want to be. Ah. Like they saw everything that they were doing that they didn't like. And they say, I don't want to be this kind of person. I don't want to be this kind of professional. And that mm-hmm. to me blew me away the first time yeah. I heard that because I never considered that, right? That there's yeah. sometimes uh, your parents maybe steer you in the direction that's different to what you want to go. And some people have used it to, to fuel really their dreams. Do you think I cannot yeah. do this? Watch and <laughs> wait and see I, me do it. <laughs> I, I give those people a lot of credit because they come from an extreme disadvantage in that sense. Absolutely. And for me, coming from an Italian family that are really supportive, Mm -hmm. you know, to me, my parents would not eat to give me food, would not, would pay for my schooling, would never expect a cent back. Yes. That's kind of the Latin, you know, the Italian way. It's like you don't loan money to your kids. Of course, if they are 40, that's a different thing. But, you know, (laughs) at least until the schooling part, they really feel it's their responsibility. Well, that's that's the best start in life if you have parents like that and an extended family, Absolutely. which it sounds like you did. That was incredibly fortunate. Yes, no, I am very, very fortunate, and always. I, and, and what my parents always say, though, it's you always uh, gave back, like you always took responsibility. It's not like we were uh, giving you these things and paying for your education, and you brought bad grades. Uh, yeah. You always responded to what we were giving you. And I I guess they were measuring too. It's like, oh, you want to do a master's, but you barely graduated from bachelor's? No, we're not paying for that. (laughs) I think that's what my mom said, but we saw that you were responding. So in any case, going on to your experience. So you, when did you move? You went from, from Connecticut to Boston or New York? So I went from Connecticut, then to Boston and I was, you know, I think for your listeners, it's it's really interesting to hear because you sort of think you have one path and then you can veer off in 10 different ways and it all works. So it's the same sort of thing for me. Again, the 80s were fairly materialistic. So I was on board, you know, I'm going to get a business background. I'm going to go into business. I'm very excited about that. So I went to Boston College, completed it. I actually had a wonderful internship there and I would suggest for young people or anybody to get an internship. I was very lucky. I was able to do college in three years because my father was a professor. I could take classes at his university. And I went into this uh, interview and this woman sitting and talking to me, I had no idea how she'd gotten my resume. I'd never applied to this place. And halfway through, you know, and I'm 20 years old, she said, you have no idea why you're here, do you? <laughs> and again, remember, no internet. You can't Google these organizations. Yeah. Yes, so, that's an so, important point. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I was not, I was remiss, but not that remiss. Um, <laughs> so I said, I'm really sorry. I'm embarrassed. I, I 
don't know much about your organization, but I'd love to find out. It sounds really interesting. So lo and behold, I got the job. I was the I was Massachusetts Port Authority Trade Development Unit. Wow. Asian trade representative intern. So I was through the roof because they were understaffed. So I was like, oh my gosh, I get to do everything. <laughs> <laughs> How young and dumb, but still, you know. <laughs> but probably that gave you an invaluable expertise. It, it was wonderful. Actually, that was my first book. I put together a book for the Massachusetts Port Authority on how to do business with Japan, because Japan was all the rage in the 80s. And we were trying to sell products to Japan or have Japanese trade with Massachusetts. And that was a lot of fun. And then they, I was going back to school for my senior year, and they said, oh, we have to open a Japanese an office in Japan. Hey, Joan, can you do it? And I said, no, I really have to go back to college, but I'll always remember, always think, maybe I should just have done that. Uh-huh. It's been interesting and figured out how to finish college. Would you know? that be one of, like, would you, you consider <laughs> a regret or just more like a sliding door kind of thing? Like, sliding what would have happened? Because it's good. kind of fascinating. And I always was more fixated on China as an area of interest. Uh-huh. Than Japan, although Japan is a fascinating country and just a tremendous country yeah. as well. But that, then, so then I actually, it was a recession. It was 1992, and people were having a difficulty getting jobs. And I really, again, wanted to go into business. That was very clear to me. And my father's university offered for free, if you can imagine, Leticia, wow. um, for free, uh, an MBA that they, you know, I could go for free until I was 25. So I was 22 and I thought, well, there's a recession and you get to do part of the program in Paris because they own the school there. So oh I my needed God. to get myself to Paris. So I got, in essence, a free MBA of which I got to live the life in Paris. Oh my God. Yeah, that's... So that was that was the dream. That is um, the dream. You know, we have that in common, but I didn't get it for free. I did when I got laid off from my, my job at Nortel. I had already been studying French for two years. And I said, you know what? I want to go and, and perfect it. So I, I took my layoff package and I said, I worked so hard. I'm going to spend this money in France. <laughs> and, and, and I went there for five months. That is gutsy. Yeah. I love that. But I That's- was older. I was I was 30 at the time, but uh, but yeah, I was fascinated. So you're telling me this and I'm like, oh, wow, oh. she really got it right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, I think as long as you get there, if that's a dream, and for a lot of people, it just is it's almost a fascination with Paris, the history, the energy. And, and so it was wonderful. And I still, to this day, I would say I got the most out of business school and the people that I met there. In college was very nice. I really enjoyed it. But business school, I just really liked the uh, the atmosphere and I liked the people and I There was a commonality of what we liked. So I stay in touch with those people quite a bit. And then, of course, you know, I I eventually said, well, I have to go to work. And I came to New York. And New York, of course, was always where I wanted to be. Again, my family, part of my family had been from New York. But I was very comfortable. And that was, I wanted to get myself there. So after a few months of looking, and I bought a fax machine. That was important during those days. And you'd fax your resume. I got a job with the Japanese trading giant Mitsui, and I was a steel trader. So it was a corporate person with an MBA doing big business, and I really enjoyed it. And it was a wonderful lifestyle going out, you know, for Japanese food every night and, you know, sometimes karaoke. It was an interesting lifestyle for a little bit. 
But I always felt like it would be much more interesting to be an entrepreneur. I always felt that 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 was more of my calling. And eventually uh, sort of segued out of Mitsui by chance because I met this man who became a boyfriend, who then became a husband. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They always have that ability, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. He he said, you know, real estate's a really interesting business and it's very entrepreneurial. And I think he was thinking of commercial, but I thought about it. It never had occurred to me other than international people owning real estate in the U.S., which is a very big, it's it's a very smart thing. People look at it as diversification of assets. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I get it. I, I, I know this crowd. I like that idea. And I ended up in residential real estate. And I think that my, my husband was like, I think you're going to go into commercial real estate and do buildings. But it, it turns out that residential real estate for my life has been a much better career path because it allowed me to have a lot more quality in my life, as opposed to being the corporate person I thought I would be, as opposed to my dream of maybe being the expat traveling around the world and having that sort of job. I've traveled around the world on my own dime, dealing with international clients, and it's been very rewarding. It's just a different path than I could have possibly dreamed of. Wow, that's uh, fascinating. You know, I I was at uh, mentoring some young girls that are going to graduate soon from high school. Lovely. And uh, this was last Friday. And, uh, you know, to share with them what I've been doing. And they were, I think 90% of them want to study nursing. Mm. And I'm like, how can this be? You know, like everybody, it, it cannot be that everybody wants to study nursing. And then you realize how much whomever talks to them in those at that time has such a big influence. And one of the things that I mentioned that helped me was exactly thinking about the kind of life I wanted to live. I say, you have to think about the kind of life you want to live. If you like to travel and you become a nurse, probably you won't be able to do that a lot. And, you know, and, and so everything I've heard about you, it's like, you know, you mentioned international right from in your childhood. Yeah. You mentioned social right in your childhood. So to me, it's no surprise why you have this amazing energy about you and very uh, a lot of light around yourself and that someone that really truly enjoys what you do. And Thank I think you. that's key because that translates into your customers being happy, your clients, and not having to to struggle to find people to work with you because the word gets out. I'm sure. Yeah, I think we, I hope that we all have the opportunity to do things we enjoy. And I remember working at Mitsui and most of my work was in the office and I was always looking at the, the, uh, most of the sales staff would go and be out on the road. I didn't want to be a road warrior, quote unquote, you know, whatever that term is, but I really was thinking, boy, would it be fun to be out there and talking with people more? I think that was much more appealing to me. And I hope that everybody has the opportunity to do something that gives them a little joy every day. And certainly working with the clients that I have, about 50% of my clients are international, 50% of local, and local in New York is pretty global anyway. Yes, um, that's true. You know, that's like true. Same, with my, same with where you are in Florida. It's You really grow as a person because you're learning so much from your clients. And, and the clients who are able to diversify their assets in terms of real estate are very savvy. And I've learned a lot from clients in terms of negotiating, in terms of 
how to go about things in terms of the different types of people and the different specific needs that you have to work with so that you can be their, you know, advocate. Absolutely. And, and it's so important. And I do have a master's on international business ah. by, by way of almost default because I wanted to do an MBA and when I, and I, I knew I wanted to be in Miami. So I just applied to University of Miami when I graduated uh, from my bachelor in Venezuela. And yes. then I applied for my MBA, but then someone told me, you know, they have like a dual degree program. And in the same amount of time, you get two masters oh, and, and like an internship, which was very important for me because it will give me a chance to work in the U.S. And so it yes. was a visa thing. So basically I ended up in this program where international business was not really in my, in my plan. Mm. But I ended up by getting that because I wanted the MBA and it has been, it was fantastic because I oh, was I like you already international Italian parents living in Venezuela. So I had yes. friends from all over the world. But once you start paying attention to the differences in culture, it makes you so much more aware that when you have a client, there's things that for the Europeans are very important that for the American is not. And, and Northern Europe, now I'm married to a Dutch. So now I know ah, things that, well, and it's not now I'm married. I'm married a Dutch. So it's the only <laughs> husband I had that sounded like I had several. That's, well, you know, that, that presents a lot of, not challenges, opportunities to really work out details because they're coming from pla two different places and the way you approach things, I would think. Absolutely. And, and, and sometimes people think because, you know, in, in certain situations, it's not that I play devil's advocate. Well, I like doing that too. I, I admit it. But I also am so conscious about the cultures and how people are different just by way of how their DNA, the way yes. where they your race, what is important to you. That usually I bring it up. I say, well, this might not be the reason. Have you considered this other thing where this person comes from? This is important. Yes. And so, you know, this is something that I am very um, appreciative of, that I, I was able to to get that education, but and also marry with something that was already <laughs> important. See, it's all luck, and you just can't plan. It just things no. happen. Would you have ever thought that you were going to marry uh, a Dutchman? Never, never. And uh, and if you go back a few episodes, I I have an episode where I say how. I found love online because then we met on Matcha.com and I'm not going to be repetitive. I have a full episode about that, but wow. he, not only did I meet him, meet him online, he had lived in Venezuela for eight years and that was never on his Matcha.com profile. So people think oh. A, that we met in Venezuela or that I knew that he had lived there when I met him, nothing. Nothing, you know. Wow. And so that's what I say to people that say, well, I like destiny to take control. I don't like to do the online thing because then destiny doesn't play its role. Oh, I always say, trust me, destiny plays <laughs> role. It, one way or the other is going to find you, you know. So right. it's, it's always like, you know, half the battle is getting out there, is showing up. Absolutely. If you show up, something will happen. I love that. I, I think that's uh, already your episode title, Show Up. <laughs> so tell me more about, you know, being being working in New York. That's probably my favorite city in the whole wide world. I've traveled lots, but the energy you feel in New York City, you don't feel it anywhere else for me. 
Well, I, I, I listen, I'm very biased. So I would, of course, 100 percent agree with you. <laughs> but I recognize that there are incredible places all over the world, including Miami, which also has that same vitality and 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 just the the, the the Latin component of it is, I think, really exciting. Yeah, I think um, after the Super Bowl half show, everybody got that clear. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. If you hadn't figured that one out before. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> That's an episode all by itself. Exactly. I've been thinking about having that uh, that as an episode. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, well, I, I mean, that, but we do have that component in New York. We have, we, I believe we have every culture in New York represented. And that's what gives it its flavor, if you want to put it that way. And that's what makes it so interesting. That's what makes some of the neighborhoods so interesting. As things have evolved, I've been here, I've been in New York since 1993. It used to be if you went, for example, I remember I went down to Soho in 1993 or 94, and I found this particular street a little scary. I mean, that's hysterical at this point, because mm -hmm. Soho is so glamorous. You have every kind of fancy, you know, label, every sort of beautiful uh, designer outfit down there, you know, and so it's really changed. And like, what's interesting about New York is that sometimes the neighborhoods like Little Italy used to be called Little Italy in New York City. And it was a really wonderful, vibrant part for those who, I guess, really uh, Italians, but it was mostly Italian-Americans by that point. And then it segued in the 90s to become Nolita. So all of a sudden it had this kind of sort of exciting name and it transitioned to feel a lot like Soho. It's the neighborhood next to Soho. So, I mean, just lots of things change all the time. And that's what I think keeps things interesting, but still areas retain their original you know, flavor, uh, attitude, and same with Brooklyn. Brooklyn has evolved tremendously, I want to say 10 years, but it's much, it's more too. And, and, and it's, for example, if you are a millennial, it seems that, you know, if, if your parents live in Manhattan, which has always traditionally been the, the place to go, if you could, it, none of the millennials want to live in, in Manhattan. They wouldn't be caught dead here. They, they want to be in Brooklyn. So I have a lot of clients who bought properties for themselves. Maybe they live here, maybe they don't. The, the, the adults, the, you know, I should say the, 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 the parents and then their kids who become the young professionals come in and the parents traditionally help out. And they, I've learned Brooklyn because of that, because they would, they don't want to be in Manhattan. And it's fascinating to see all these areas of Brooklyn have changed and, and, and the food culture there is incredible and, and the craft beer and, and, and just, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's just changed. I think if people grew up there or went there 10 or 20 years ago, they wouldn't recognize it. I believe it. I believe it. But I also imagine it's a very competitive, you know, market. And I know that in the book, in your chapter, you, you try to address that into how you can differentiate yourself, what makes you unique. So what, what's, what's your recipe for success in such a, such a convoluted market? Well, sure. I, I don't think you can be everything to everybody. I think you just have to just say, Some people are going to want to work with me or our company, and some people aren't. And what we've done is we've sort of said, 
our chapter is called Boutique is Best. And, and our tagline is, it's all about the clients. Because in the end, that's all you have. If you're not doing a good job, if you're not doing right by your client, you're not going to have future business. So you really have to listen to specifically their needs. You know, as I said, the older generation wanted that fancy condo in Manhattan, let's say in Midtown. The new young professional millennial generation, they want Brooklyn, cool, townhouse, um, you know, Bed-Stuy, you know, uh, Fort Greene, Prospect Heights. They want all of these other kinds of things that are more important to them. So if you listen to each party, they have very different value, but not values, but very different things that they want. So I think you have to listen to your client, do a good job for them, even if it's sometimes puts a little bit of a conflict. So, you know, many times you'll benefit by something, but you have to take a long-term perspective with the client and you have to do what's right with them in the long-term. And because of that, you'll have a long-term relationship with that client, that corporation, you know, that, that family. That's uh, something that you said that a long-term perspective, I think that has been said so many times. It's, it takes time, long-term perspective, something, but it just, and show up and do the work. It's uh, being said in many different ways, but uh, I also think sometimes people get impatient, right? When when they're trying to get achieve success and 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 you know go up the ladder and they want it fast. And right. it's, sometimes e you just have to play a long game. Yeah, it's easy to it's easy to try and take shortcuts, but it always gets you. It really does. The few times I thought, oh, I'm just gonna not worry about that. It, it was a problem. It just always is. So I think if you look at it as a long-term play, it always, it always works out better for you. That's, that's awesome. And now in terms of the, it sounds, and I think you're doing what you enjoy. I know that uh, it was a decision at some point in your life when you say, I'm going to pursue a career. I'm going to do my own business. I'm sure there were tough times or there still are tough times where you get, demotivated mm -hmm. and you get down. And uh, so what I always like to ask, what, what's your routine to go back into, into a space in your mind when you feel excited again and, and you go out and, sure. and, and put up the fight again? Well, it's interesting that you say that because I think right this very moment, we are probably both or we're all living in a time where things are going to slow down for us right now for your, your audience we're living the coronavirus and, yep. you know, major cities are pretty shut, pretty much shutting down. And we've been talking that all of our planned, you know, things where we're going to social engagements or conferences or whatever the case may be, we were supposed to see each other at a conference next week. Yes. And it's canceled justifiably. So that could be a little bit, you know, you have a plan, you're, you're working hard to get to that. You're preparing, you know, and all of a sudden, you don't have that opportunity anymore. So I think you just have to look at it as that something's going to happen and it's always going to take you off the path that you're going. So you have to look at it as, well, let's do more things relating to the book. Let's think how we can talk more about our stories and, and have our platform and tell people a little bit more about ourselves, what we're thinking, what we're doing. Because again, we're in it for the long run. This is a short-term problem or let's hope it's a short-term problem, but it's a problem and we have to deal with it. But you can think long-term and you can better yourself each day or focus, for example, not on meeting clients, but 
where you want to be with clients in a year and, and how you need to present to them. And you can refine your, your work. You can also use it. Going back to what you've said about your specific back to basics podcast is you can connect with yourself. I've had some clients who have said, I'm going to stay in my house in needlepoint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think you have to use that as an opportunity. If somebody says, slow down, maybe it's time to just slow down a little bit for a moment. I love that point, Joan. Thanks for bringing it up. I think that this is, we're living in a time where nature is reminding us that nothing is as important as we think it is. All yes. the times where we say, I cannot postpone a meeting, I cannot, but well, yes. right now, nothing is going to go on. It's already not going on in Italy and other countries that are on complete lockdown. And we're about oh, to yes. experience the same thing, I believe. Every single concert, sporting event, I heard someone saying, what am I going, even if I'm home, what am I going to watch? There's no sports going on. Oh, <laughs> March Madness is canceled. That That is the ultimate for some people madness, you know, but yeah. it, you understand why. We understand why. Yes. We get it. Yes, absolutely. And I think, and I was happy, actually, I was telling um, a mom at the school that my kids are getting this lesson. Because again, I was raised in Venezuela where we had coup d'etats. And and so for us, sometimes we had circumstances where, oh, guess what? (laughs) Chavez just tried to overcome the government. So then you, there you were two, three weeks inside the house. Then they took him down and then again in the house. Then they brought him back (laughs) again in the house. (laughs) So we, we were raised like that. To me, it's not that strange to be put in that situation of uncertainty of not knowing yes. what's going to happen and not having control. And I know, of course, we, we mentioned 9-11 here in the U.S. Yes. Everybody felt that way. But in other countries in, in worse situations, I know for my family in Italy that they haven't had a situation like this in many, many, many years. Mm. And uh, and so they're dealing with that. Like, we cannot go out. We cannot socialize. It's It's hard. And my kids, being American, being very little, now had to deal with their carnival at school being canceled, right. which is they look forward the entire year oh. uh, about this event. And, and everything was up and set up for it to start yesterday. And it's been a big disappointment because, you know, as parents, we want them to have fun. We want to have fun. But right. But then you struggle. Is this the right thing to do? So, That's yeah. Very true. I think all the things that you said are really, really on target. And you just... Yeah, I guess once you've had that happen to you once, you mentioned the coup d'etat. That is a much more, uh, that's very deeply personal and very scary when I think of that. I've never lived through that. But when you have something that happens and it adjusts the whole world that you live in, and 9-11 was terrible. Thankfully, I wasn't down there, but I was in the city and I saw how it affected things and things came to a stop. You kind of understand, okay, this is a moment where you just have to stop and just be and, and, and roll with things a lot more. And I think that's a good skill is to be able to roll with things and know that things will normalize again, but just, it takes a little time. 
Absolutely. Yeah. That's what I, exactly what I told my kids, five years old and nine years old. And I said, this wow. is a situation where mommy and daddy cannot make it right. When your school principal cannot make it right. When the president mm. of the United States cannot make it right. Yes. This is out of everybody's control. So we're all on the same boat. I, I told him this is even new for me and for daddy. And, and so we all stay, <laughs> stick together. But, you know, although I'm sad for the circumstances, I'm happy they're getting to leave a circumstance like that. Yes, because it, it'll yeah. make them stronger and more realistic. Exactly. And um, I think, for example, they say that this generation, I have a 15 year old, they are the Generation Z, I believe. And they're supposed to be more like the their grandparents who lived through tough times. Because, you know, if you have a five year old, a nine year old, a 15 year old, they've seen tough times. And I think you have more of a realistic vision of, what the world is like, and you have, I think it's going to be a pretty good generation, I hope. Yeah, the, the, I agree with you. That that understanding that something bad can happen, and again, I feel I'm a very positive person, but in every circumstance, I always say, and what if, you know, but because I come from that, I come from <laughs> that kind of situation where bad things can happen and, and are, are out of your control. And uh, I feel sometimes in the U.S., uh, we are too optimistic. Like we don't plan too much for the worst case scenario. Oh yes, and that's. Uh, do you feel that's more of a European attitude that they know how to deal with things? I think the European they still have all that happened. You know, in the Second World War, still yes. very ingrained. Uh, yes. Like my parents or my husband's parents, for example. My husband say, I cannot leave food on the plate. My mom would have killed me because growing up, they had that problem, you know, after the oh, war yes. and not having, you know, sure. food and all that. And they ingrained that in their kids, which is us. I think when you have not had that experience or or the parents, what I hear about Italian-Americans, and, and you maybe can correct me if I'm wrong, Okay. is that they sure. were so traumatized and they wanted to fit in so badly when they got to the U.S. that they almost didn't even speak Italian. And I have friends of mine that both parents are Italian and they don't speak Italian. Yes. And I, I'm, I'm, my parents are Italian. I speak fluent Italian. And, and when I ask, and I ask, where are your parents from? Oh, well, they're from this region. But what's the name of the town? They don't know. They don't went back to visit many of them or they went many after many years. Uh, I think with that, with with generations, like the first generation born here or that came here early would still have that ability to speak Italian or have some. But if it's a second generation, I think it was assimilation was probably really common. I can't speak for everybody, but the, the Italian part of my family, which is only one part, they really assimilated, you know. That yeah, was kind of their thing. Yeah, they wanted to. They say, we don't want to be different. We want to be fit in. And I don't want my kids to have an accent and I want to fit in. And so they actually did the opposite where my parents, maybe it was a later immigration, right? Yes. They, he, he went to Venezuela in the late 50s, oh. uh, early 60s. So uh, the ones that arrived in the U.S., they arrive earlier than that. So I think yes, you're uh, right. the biggest chunk. So I think they, they use different strategies. But in my case, my parents are very proud of their home. My mom was already 29 when she arrived in Venezuela. So uh, all our food, all our uh, traditions mm -hmm. at home, all that, they really made a point about being Italian. 
Mm. My dad oh, that's w- wonderful. Yeah, my dad would get upset if he saw me eating like white rice, which is very <laughs> Latin. He's Uh-oh. like, you're eating like a Venezuelan. <laughs> and I'm like, well, last time I checked, I was born here. <laughs> but you have he was it all. Restra- you're a nice mix of everything. You're yeah. truly global. Now I'm paying the price when I see my kids eating a nice burger. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> I told them you're eating like an American <laughs> and I love burgers, but now I can relate to my dad. Oh yeah. Oh, that but, is so funny. Yeah. Oh, there, wow. It's good. It's good to have a little differences in the mix, but uh, so Joan, tell me what's next besides the book. What are you working on? Oh, Anything sure. Exciting? Well, it's, it's, it's like we said from the beginning, you know, you start one path and I've been 20 years on the path of real estate We've done some real estate development. We've done some air ride sales. We've done various other, you know, building financing. So that's a little different than residential real estate. But, you know, always looking for the next opportunity. And one of the things that when I was dealing with all these millennials going to Brooklyn and seeing all these fabulous neighborhoods, I saw all of these other aspects going on. And I thought really affordable housing was needed. So we were able to register as a woman-owned business with New York City as somebody who would be a developer for some of their product projects. And actually we've dealt with sort of individually owned land and have tried and are in the process of doing affordable housing in some places in Brooklyn, which is pretty exciting. Wow. And, yeah. yeah. And that, that, that's, that's something that New York needs, probably any city needs. And because you do need a workforce that is on various levels and as Brooklyn became more and more expensive, it pushed certain people out. So we need to find a balance there. So we we, we look forward and we have the capability of being that th- those, you know, people that help that and that with that. The other thing that came about when, when I was learning about the government and how they work, because most of the time I had worked for individuals or my company worked for individuals in real estate, occasionally a government that was attached to the UN, which is fascinating on its own. But we never worked within the New York City government because that's not a a typical client that I would have. And learning how the government works and that they really need a product and learning and being very proud as being a woman-owned business and having also gone through the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Business Program, I had met an associate who really did, you know, a fabulous job in terms of communications and content building. She was a wonderful person that I would really find something that I wanted to do and work with her. And I also had someone from college who's been a technologist and has been involved with smart city consulting, smart city solutions, and bringing all sorts of, you know, technology. Basically, so we developed what's called Smart NY. It's a technology and marketing company that helps cities and businesses connect communities through IoT, digital signage, Wayfair, Wayfinding, and and different content. And that's the idea. So we sort of came together, created a new company, became a new company in 2019, and sort of 2020, we're, we're deciding and communicating with how we can develop our presence in New York City, because the partner that I have that's the technologist, he's been at it for 20 plus years, and he's done a tremendous job, and we want to be part of that as well. So that's our next step. Well, that's extremely exciting. <laughs> yes. And uh, 
And one thing I would say to this audience, when I joined the group, uh, the book project, I did it because, hey, let me do the next crazy things. And, and just, <laughs> it seemed interesting. And a lot of people, as I said many times on the podcast, say, why would you do that? Why, what are you going to gain from that? What? And I, I always say, I don't do things for what I'm going to gain. I do things because I enjoy the journey and I enjoy talking to people like you. I've met so many amazing people through the podcast journey, but through the book journey, I met people like you. That and was such a wonderful benefit. I, you know, you're right. You don't go into something saying, this is what I expect out of it, but it, it's been such a pleasure. Absolutely. And also we tie in, which we tie knew? in, which is exactly <laughs> what I was going to be my point. It's, you know, you spoke about everything you do. And of course, we have not touched on something like we like each other. This is great. And now these past three minutes that you com said what you want to do with Smart New York totally aligns. I created <laughs> a smart city company in 2019, just like you. And that's our, our paths there completely cross. And, but that was never the intention. So we don't know. We've spoken about this. At some point, we'll talk to each other about this. Yes. But it's amazing. And this is my point to people listening out there. Don't do things just because uh, you have an end goal or, and you think, or not do things because what am I going to gain? Things are going to pan out when they need to pan out. Right. And the more so, you put yourself out there, the better it is. That's right. Our theme today to the audience is is just get out there and you'll see. Be open. It really is. That's what us, that's what life is about, too. But when you apply it to business, really interesting, wonderful things come together. I love it. Well, <laughs> this has been great. I cannot finish the interview without saying if you had one hour or a few, you know, hours to do something that really makes Joan tick, that reminds you about the excitement of living. Is there anything in particular that uh, you like? Well, I love to travel, but I don't think that's going to happen soon. So I think I'll travel in my mind with watching TV or uh -huh. uh, any of these fabulous Netflix or Amazon shows that take you back. And, you know, you can and do that or read. But it's interesting when you said that my first when I thought about that as a question, when you have a child and you have a business and you try to be a good wife and be a good daughter and all those sort of things, Having a free hour is like a foreign concept. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I can't relate to that. <laughs> so, but in theory, yes, that's, I would just try and connect to a passion, which is like travel or learning about something or even just sitting and having a cup of coffee or tea with a friend. And maybe now that's our podcast or that's our, that's our way of connecting online is how we'll have to see friends. Like the, doing the Zoom works quite well. Yes, I have to say, yeah, we are. We might be on lockdown at some point, but now we have FaceTime and, and, and other tools that we didn't have a few years back. Yes. So oh. that's great. Well, Joan, you've been fantastic. I am happy because normally when I end up the interviews and I really like the person, I say, well, maybe I'll talk to them again or not, but I know <laughs> I'll talk to you again and we I'm excited about our journey. Thank you for having me on Back to Basics. It has been a pleasure to get to know you personally. And then I actually really learned a lot about you today speaking. And it was a lot of fun. So thank, thank you. you, Joan. Thank you so much. And uh, maybe we'll have you again after we launch the book at, in Back to Basics. 
And our, and we both have our next chapters on our new businesses. So we never know. You never know. That's good. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye, Joan. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. And until the next time.